87% of all widely distributed statistics are poorly sourced or possibly inaccurate. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with the world's first audio podcast all about graphs and charts. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Skis go on sale in the summer. They don't sell that well, though, because we're not thinking about skiing unless there's snow outside. And graphs and charts and poles, well, all year round, we need to pay attention to how we are being sold ideas, how ideas are represented and misrepresented. But at least in my country, in November, is when we really notice just how badly they're being misused. This is a podcast about graphs and charts and polls created without any graphs, charts, or polls. And just so that it's easy to focus, we're doing it right in the middle of a non-election season because it's always a good idea to know what is being said and why. Showing someone a graph, a chart, or a poll is an intentional act. It is an act of editing. You are choosing what to show someone because you want to make a point. Or if you don't want to make a point, you're simply wasting their time. But before we talk about those forms of graphic information, let's talk about the pictures. The pictures in a newspaper. The pictures in a web article. My friend Liz Jackson, who does important work in disability rights, has taught me about the alt-image text. And what this is, is text that we need to put in images that go on our website to explain to someone who is visually impaired what the picture is of. Now, it's simple if the picture is simply a noun. This is a picture of a cherry. This is a picture of a football. Google likes this too because it makes it easier for their search engines to figure out what you just put up a picture of. But if it's a news site, if it's someone with an editorial point of view, if it's someone who has made a choice about a picture, putting into text what the picture is and what it's for turns out to be a really difficult decision. Because if you're running a political story, it is insufficient to say, and this is a picture of so-and-so who is the head of this country. 
because you didn't pick the picture just for that reason. You could say, this is a humiliating picture showing the person being scolded by his peers. This is a picture that shows the person in the best possible light. Those words represent editorial intent. And there is editorial intent when we run pictures in the newspaper. That's why newspapers spend so much time and money on pictures and the people who edit them. They're not simply putting up a noun because we already know what a political figure looks like. They're putting up something to amplify the intent of the story. And then we get to graphs and charts. USA Today led the use of graphs and charts throughout newspapers. They also wrecked them in many ways by making them dumb. Why did they make them dumb? Because the editors of America's newspaper decided that Americans don't understand statistics, that Americans will look at a picture that comes in a chart or a graph and will come to a conclusion mostly that it's sort of static, that it says blah, 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 here is some math. And thus, the story, the caption, the headline becomes more truthy because after all, here's a picture, usually a pie chart or a stacked bar chart that proves that the headline is correct. The alt text that would go with these graphs or charts would need to be something like, here's some meaningless data presented in a confusing way designed for people who aren't going to look deeply into how to present data and will just go along with us because it looks like we've done our homework. And challenging each other to say out loud what the point of that chart or graph is, is the first step in doing a better job of explaining how the world is actually functioning. So there are some really simple rules that get violated all the time. Here's the first one. If you're going to present information on X, Y axes, it's not fair to change the axis when you're comparing A to B. We see this all the time when news sources are trying to exaggerate small differences. So if they're showing something at the 50s or the 60s range, instead of starting the axis at zero, they started at 50. So they can magnify the differences. And if the differences are significant, there's nothing wrong with that. But most of the time, the differences aren't significant at all. And so if the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which most people don't understand, is up 84 points, showing a graph that indicates that it is skyrocketing is absurd because as I report this, the Dow is over 20,000. A difference of 80 points, 100 points, 200 points is the same as nothing. That what they should say on the radio, which doesn't use charts and graphs, is the Dow was essentially unchanged today. It is a waste of time to say the Dow was up 89.4 points. The point four is a rounding error, but so is the 89. There is no news. The reason that it feels like news is that they're basing their y-axis at the zero point instead of the 20,000 or the 25,000 mark. If it's at 25,000, we wouldn't even be able to see that the graph went up 89 points. Number two second biggest offense. Volume is different than area, and area is different than length. 
So if I'm going to accurately chart the change of a single axis, like the value of the Dow, it doesn't make sense for me to give it length and width because I've just multiplied its impact dramatically. It's a line. It's a single number. It just went up. That's all it is. It's not area, and it's definitely not volume. And so the mistake, it's not a mistake, the intentional shortcut someone trying to make a point makes is by giving bulk to what is changing because it makes the change look much bigger. So for those of you who can do a little bit of math in your head, which should be everyone, if something went up from two to three, you can visualize that. But if something really, really, really wide went from two stories high to three stories high, it looks like it got a lot bigger because we multiplied it in two directions. And if we start multiplying it in three directions, now the issue gets even more magnified, which was the intent of the person who built the graph or the chart. The third mistake, which is mostly related to polling, is this. There is the margin of error. What does margin of error even mean? Well, the reason it's a poll and not an election or not a census is we asked the smallest possible number of people in order to get this data we're about to share with you. 300, 400, 500 people. They're not picked completely randomly. They're picked from selected groups because over time, pollsters have figured out that when you ask a certain kind of person from a certain group and you ask a few hundred of them, you can multiply that up to how the population is feeling right now to within, say, five percentage points of error, which means that if you do a poll of this group, and 47% of them say, I agree with that. There is no difference between 47, 48, 49, 50. It's all within the margin of error. We're plunging around in the dark, feeling our way forward. There is no difference between 47 and 50. It's within the margin of error. And second, we are reporting how people feel today, not how they're going to act a month from now. We don't know how they're going to act a month from now. All we know is how they feel today. When we bring these two things together, we now see how polling is completely misused because the media wants everything to be a horse race because apparently it's easy to sell tickets to a horse race. And it turns out elections only happen once every year or four years. That's too far in the future. So instead, it's the horse race. Who's up today? And are they up a little or are they up a lot? They ignore the margin of error. They ignore the very nature of what we learn from a poll. They turn it into something to manipulate the public. And lately, in the last 10 or 20 years, it turns out the public hears poll data and uses it to make decisions about what is actually happening in the world, even though the people, if they're honest, who made the poll don't know what's actually happening. All they know is they took a snapshot in time of a group of people and applied some statistical analysis to tell you what the odds were that they were within the realm of possibility. So a lot of people criticized the polls in the election between Clinton and Trump, but the polls weren't wrong. The polls were properly done and misreported as certainty, as 
if we were seeing results. We weren't seeing results. We were seeing odds and we were seeing margin of error. So I've just shared three kinds of malpractice that people with a point of view that they want to share can commit. Obviously, there are more than three, but the takeaway from this needs to be as follows. If someone brings you a chart or a graph, what's the alt text for it? If they were going to honestly write the alt text, what would they be writing? Is that getting past our filters? Because when we see pictures and we're afraid of math and statistics, does it go straight to the truth part of our brain and we just believe it? Because no longer is a picture worth a thousand words. We know how easy it is to fake things in Photoshop. Now it's a graph or a chart that's worth a thousand words. And when we look at the homepage of the New York Times, which prides itself on being correct in what it reports, and we see that little twitching arrow at the top that Anil Dash pointed out was faked. The poll data wasn't twitching. They intentionally created a jumpy meter at the top of their homepage to make us stressed out, to believe that breaking news was actually coming in when it wasn't. And so it's on us as the consumers of this information to wonder out loud, why did they show this to us? Are they presenting it fairly or are they trying to make a point? And number two, which I think is really important because the people who listen to this podcast, in addition to consuming this information, are often the makers of this information, is this. If you have to lie with your charts and graphs, you probably are selling a point of view you're not proud of. My hunch is it's possible to create charts and graphs that are inherently straightforward, that are honest, that are accurately constructed, and still present your point of view. Because the reason it's your point of view is that you've done the research and you believe it. And so the act of omission that we're making as non-professional media voices is even more important because guess what? Your charts are probably not making the point as effectively as they could. They might be overcomplicated. They might have too much data in them. They might not be clear enough. And so my advice is simple. Before you make the chart, make the slide that says exactly what the chart is trying to prove. And then strip away all the extraneous information to get to the truth underlying it, presenting it as clearly as you can what you're trying to say. Here's a hint. If you're using a pie chart, you're probably doing it wrong. We'll be back in a second with answers from last week's episode. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. 
Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Steven out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And click the appropriate button. Three heartfelt and nuanced questions this week. Many of them speak for themselves. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Mike in Toronto, Canada. In your blogs, books, and podcasts, you've pointed out a lot of the problems with the public school system. Namely, that it does more to promote compliance and seeking validation from authority figures, all of which are behaviors that best serve an outdated or industrial economic model. Yet, I've also heard you mention that you do believe in the public school system and that you put your kids through this. So I was wondering if you could tease out some of the nuance here. Putting aside whether or not a private education is even affordable for someone, what are the values and attitudes that are gained in putting a child through the public system? This has been on my mind lately as my wife and I are expecting our first child this summer. We clearly have plenty of time until the question takes on immediate relevance, but nothing wrong with planting the seeds of those conversations nice and early. Uh, thanks again for everything you do. I hope you and yours are well. Cheers. Thanks for this question, and your kid is lucky to have you, and vice versa. I have a few thoughts about public school. First one is this. The more often that people who have a choice enroll their kids in public school, the better the public schools are going to get because people who have a choice can also bring their voice to the situation. They can speak up. They can teach. They can learn. They can engage. They can make it better. But why even bother if you have a choice? Well, I think that public school around the world helps create the fabric of culture, that when lots and lots of people in a community share a similar experience together, that shared experience can bind us together. Also, it's important to note that throughout my country anyway, when done properly, public school can be a bit of a connector, a melting pot, if you will, if we don't get too carried away gerrymandering school districts, the point is that kids who are next to other kids who don't necessarily have the means to get a fancy school's tuition paid for or a scholarship from a fancy school, that's a great way for kids to learn shared experience. Now, I think that parents who have a choice also tend to have the ability to do something with all that homeschooling time from 3 p.m. in the afternoon to midnight. Kids spend at least as much time home, particularly if we count the five years before school starts, as they do at public school. And so if we view public school as a chance to build a community, to build a culture, to find an institution that needs our inputs and to contribute to it, to make it better, that feels to me like the kind of civic engagement that makes things better. Now, of course, this can't work for all parents, because some parents, maybe if they have the means, don't have the time to do this. And I'm not shaming those people. And I'm also saying to people who have 
no choice but to send their kids to public school, that you too have the opportunity and somewhat of the obligation to show up and make school better. None of this is fair. None of it is right. Opportunities are not equally distributed. And to top it all off, most private schools are no better than most public schools, except perhaps they have better athletic fields and shorter hours. So when you add it all up, it seems to me that if we're going to put kids through 12 or more years of school, day after day after day, and we want to live in a culture filled with people who have been through that, it's on us, all of us, each of us, to the ability that we are able to, to make those schools better. I hope that helps. Hi, Seth. It's John here in the UK. I wanted to put to you a little dilemma that I have. Just over a year ago, my wife passed away from cancer. But during the months and the years before she died, we had a whole raft of different diet books, eating plans that promised cures, slowing down of cancers, removing the need for treatment. Lots of these books contradicted each other. And I found it very frustrating that she would spend hours and days poring over these books, looking at them together, trying to work out the best ultimate plan for her longevity. Now she has passed, I am left with a huge stack of these things that I'm stuck with. They cost a lot of money to buy. Yet I am stuck morally with what to do with them. I think they are hocus pocus, they're bogus. If they contradict each other, they can't all be true. Yet they gave her hope. They gave her something to control. I kind of wanted your opinion not really on what I should do with them, but what you think about people putting out this information that gives people hope, but on which there is no real scientific foundation. Thanks, Seth. Love what you do. Make a ruckus. Thank you for this, John. And I feel your pain, and I am so sorry for your loss. The thing about the kind of books that you were talking about and I lost both of my parents to cancer, is they don't sell science. Sometimes they pretend to sell science, but what they sell is hope. And the thing is, of course, they contradict each other because hope usually does contradict itself because there isn't just one path to belief. And if somebody, without harming their health, can find a way to control part of their environment, when so many other things in their life feel like they're out of control, it's hard for me to blame the person who wants to buy a book like that. This is not the same as books or quacks who tell people not to get medical care, who tell people to do something instead of proven, double-blind, actual studied medicine. No, that's not my point, or I don't think it's yours. I think instead what we need to do as we each get older and we dance around mortality and all of the trauma around us is find something to hope for. And so maybe if I were in your shoes, I would find a lending library or some other place where someone who is looking for the kind of solace they can get 
from controlling what they eat, maybe they could find it in these books. Again, big hugs from me. Hang in there. I know it takes a long time. Hi, Seth. I have been blessed by your work for well over a decade. And first, I just want to say thank you. And in that time, nothing has stuck in my head, has made me think more than your episode on modern monetary theory. And the reason is not money. Uh, I believe you got the three things correct that we need to invest in, in education, in healthcare, and in confidence. But I don't believe what those three areas need the most is money. And you're actually the one that convinced me of this, that what our education system needs is to answer the question, what is it for? And then to retool around the answer. And while we could put $10 billion into the current system, and we might get a 10% better result out of that, if we would answer the question, what is it for? We could see a 1,000% better result. And likewise, in healthcare, the vast majority of illness that we have in the United States is diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, um, things which are caused by lifestyle um, and best addressed by lifestyle changes. And yet we have a system that prescribes pills and surgery that while they help, they're much more expensive and much less effective at solving the problems. And what the system needs is to ask the question, what is it for? And then we have confidence. And while monetary theory, I'm sure, affects confidence somewhat, it's extremely small compared to the effect that the messaging from our culture has. And it seems that today the the dominant message is the world is going to pot and it's their fault. Even though this is untrue, it's not their fault the world is going to pot because the world's not going to pot and it can't be their fault. Um, And I, I think what your answer to this would be is, well, Go change one classroom, go change one person's health, go change one person's confidence, and use what you learned, use that momentum to change another and another and another. So what is it that we could do, that you could do, to change the tide of this messaging from one that's making the world a worse place to a more positive message that will make the world a better place? Thank you for this question. My answer is probably going to be shorter than the question was, but I let it run because you have so many good points. The thing is, when we spend money on something, it doesn't always make it better. But when we cease to spend money on something, it's often hard to make it better. If we look at the huge progress that has been made in, say, caffeine delivery devices from Dunkin' Donuts 25 years ago to Starbucks today, if we look at how so many businesses have piled on and piled on and piled on with their innovations, with their conveniences, with their, quote, improvements, well, the profit motive is often at work. So yeah, I'm going to answer what you thought I was going to answer, which is I wasn't saying we should put money into the broken system, particularly the medical and educational systems in my country. More money for the old system isn't going to fix it. But if a central authority who isn't simply seeking to enrich tiny corners of the market, but is willing to embrace efficacy, the same way a focus on efficacy led to a groundbreaking, record-breaking sprint to not one, not two, but three or more vaccines in less than a year, we can do the same thing with school. 
we can do the same thing with healthcare. If there are people in those systems who need to be bought out of the system to create open space for new, better systems to happen, well, then go ahead and do it. It doesn't make sense for the people in those systems to suffer simply because someone has a sinecure. We've learned so much about healthcare and education in the last 100 years, but too often we do precisely the opposite of what we need to do because entrenched bureaucratic interests who make money from existing systems are hard to unentrench. But we can do it, particularly if we have a focus and the resources to do something about it. And just to put a sharp point on it, I want to clarify something. Central authorities, whether they are central media personalities, gatekeepers, or governments with pocketbooks, don't fix anything all by themselves. Things get fixed, invented, improved, questioned at the fringes. It's at the fringes in small circles where human beings are making choices, choices about who to listen to, choices about what to buy, choices about what to stand for, and choices about how to improve their institutions. These are where the signals always begin. The question is not, can we give authority away and responsibility to some central authority? Because I think that's been shown not to work. Instead, the opportunity is to say it's on us to figure out how to build culture we are proud of, and it's on whatever central authority we're talking about, commercial or governmental, to amplify the stuff that works. We can do things like fix policing, like fix bumpy roads in things like the economy. We can do it if we care enough to say we're going to do it, as opposed to wringing our hands and just waiting for the free market to fix the problem. Because the free market hasn't fixed the problem. And in so many places, it's made it worse. So quite a few rants to wrap up this week's show. Thank you all for listening. Be well. Here's to peace of mind, possibility, and dignity. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.